Picture Manhattan for a moment. I should specify Manhattan, Montana, okay? Population 1,500. Has anyone been to Manhattan, Montana? It's near Bozeman. Hey, God bless you. There you go. I'm hoping you didn't feature in this video I'm going to bring up right now. <laughs> so this tiny town is home to a gentleman named Ernie Wayne Tertelta. At least he says there's a storage unit he sleeps in from time to time there in Manhattan, Montana. Ernie looks kind of like a Grizzly Adams impersonator, but he's not pretending. That's how he acts. He wears a tri-corner hat, big bushy beard. You can watch a video, you can watch several videos, but one in particular from a 2013 court proceeding that was against Ernie. He had been stopped for fishing without a license. When confronted, he told police that under universal law, he had the right to forage for food. The situation escalated and Ernie resisted arrest. So then when appearing in court, this is where the video kicks in, he speaks in his own defense and it doesn't go very well, as you might imagine. First of all, he objects to the capitalization of the letters of his name on court documents because he's convinced that if he acknowledges it and allows that, then he is admitting that he has been made the property of Rome. He also asserts that the, all of the proceedings are completely unconstitutional because the flag on display in the courtroom has gold fringe on the edges, which indicates that they are actually trying to force admiralty law upon him. He says, that's the Jolly Roger, and I'm not under the admiralty, and so you can't, uh, you can't do any of this. When he's asked how he's going to plead to the charges, his answer is, I never plead. Animals plead. Sounds like bah, oink, oink. That's a direct quote, okay? This is the American justice system. And things deteriorate from there, as you might expect. At one point, the judge, who does a really great job in this situation, as far as I can tell, she removes herself to confer with her bailiffs as Ernie gets more and more agitated, keeps interrupting more and more. But when she removes herself, Ernie pronounces the case dismissed, and he gets up and walks out. Now, here's the most remarkable part of the whole video is that then you see the entire courtroom had been filled with his supporters who go after him outside and they're murmuring about how they just made history. It's like mind boggling. It's the reason the internet exists is so that we can watch this video together. Now, tonight in our text, we're gonna find a man defending himself in a different court. Paul has been presented to King Agrippa, Governor Festus, military commanders, the prominent men of Caesarea, this isn't an official trial. In fact, it was meant to be an afternoon of interesting entertainment for these important people. But what follows is nothing less than a jaw-dropping spectacle as the Pharisee turned preacher turned prisoner delivers his defense and proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ to them. Now, before Paul is able to finish, Festus will shout, you've gone mad, you're crazy. He sees him as an Ernie Wayne Tertelta in, in, this, in the situation. But Paul's no Ernie. His testimony may be astonishing, but we'll find it's not unreasonable at all. He shares the remarkable story of how he came to faith in Christ. And as we listen, we should be astonished that God is so gracious as to save a wretch like him, that God was so powerful that he's able to completely transform even the worst kind of man, and that God is so generous that he's willing to do that very thing for anyone and everyone who will turn to him in faith. 
So let's begin in verse one. Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. If you recall, everyone in the audience had come in with great pomp and pageantry. They were all very impressed with themselves. Here, Agrippa says he's giving Paul permission to speak for himself. But what will become very clear very quickly is that it was Paul who had all of the authority in this situation, all together. Uh, he's not interested in speaking for himself or about himself or really seeking anything for himself. In fact, he's speaking for their benefit. That's what we're going to discover. This scene reminds us that we have been given the authority of heaven. We talked about this a little bit in our studies in the book of the Revelation on Sunday morning. The authority of God, the authority of heaven given to God's people and that we get to uh, live and move and speak with real heavenly sure authority. And so we don't need to seek the permission of man to do what our king has sent us to do. If the king has asked us to speak or to share or to live in a certain way or to worship him, we do not need man's authority before we obey our king. And we're reminded here that our speech and really our whole life is not to be lived for ourselves, but in service to our king. Agrippa said, speak for yourself. But what we'll see is that Paul talks all about Jesus. I mean, he talks about the Lord in, in reference to his own life. Yes, he gives his personal testimony. But Paul's self, we'll see, is completely wrapped up in the person and the work of Christ his Savior. That's the focal point. That is the, the anchor point that his whole life is tethered to and swings on and is motivated by all of Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what Jesus has asked of him. That's what he has to talk about today. Now, Paul's message, as you track through it, is absolutely pointedly directed at one person. Some Bible commentators think there may have been a couple hundred people in the audience. Certainly, there was a, a decent-sized crowd, military commanders, kings, their retinue, all of these important people, right? But as you go through it, and if you watch the way Paul talks, he's talking to one guy about 99% of the time. In fact, over 12 times, Paul is going to say Agrippa's name to him, or he's going to say, you, you, Agrippa, you, I'm talking to you, Agrippa. And it's really interesting. He, he like hones in on him and he's focused in on him. Now, as he speaks, as I said, he doesn't seek to exonerate himself as much as he seeks to emancipate this lost man. And we talked last time about how gross this guy was and how uh, uh, he was just full of abject wickedness and, and just he was not the kind of person you wanted your daughter to bring home from college. He wasn't the kind of person you would vote for on the ballot. He was just not a good guy. And Paul spends his entire discourse here saying, I'm hoping that this guy can be emancipated from his sins and set free by the power of Jesus. Because this man was trapped in his sin and he was therefore falling headlong toward death and judgment. As Paul lifted up his hand to speak, the jangle of his chains would be heard and seen in the room. Paul was shackled to at least one soldier, if not two, as he addressed them. It would have been a very dramatic motion to be sure. Here's how he opens in verse two. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am 
to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially since you are very knowledgeable about all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. I consider myself fortunate. Wow, what an incredible opening line. I don't watch or listen to a lot of TED Talks. Maybe some of you guys are into TED Talks. Some of them can be cool. There's a whole bunch of them, but they're, they're always really short, concise, but the few that I have seen always open with like a killer line, right? That really hooks you in and makes you think, wait, what are you talking about? And this is an incredible opening line. I consider myself fortunate. It reminds us of that famous footage of Lou Gehrig standing there in Yankee Field saying, today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. And of course, we understand the circumstances surrounding that speech. And it's a remarkable thing to say. How could Paul be pleased by his circumstances there as the weighty shackles of, of, the, of, of his Roman imprisonment were weighing down the very arm he's trying to speak with? Well, it wasn't the circumstances that Paul was excited about, but the opportunity to maybe deliver a cure to this dying crowd. Uh, one of the great, uh, there's a great movie on Disney Plus called Togo. It's about the 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 backstory. We all have heard of Balto and his run to get the serum to the kids in Nome, Alaska, right? During the diphtheria outbreak. Well, Togo tells more of the background of that, yada, yada. Anyway, but it's really great because you see what people are willing to go through and what they're willing to risk and, and how important it is to get the cure to the dying Masses. Those people who have no hope other than this medicine will do whatever it takes, will come together and overcome all of these obstacles to deliver this medicine. And so Paul is realizing, oh man, I'm in the audience of some of the sickest people in all of Caesarea, the sickest people in the Roman Empire, and I might be able to deliver them the cure, not only for some problem that they might have here or there, but the eternal problem that they're dealing with, the eternal death that they are under. I can deliver them the cure. And so he's excited about that. And Paul recognized that what he was suffering through at the time was just part of a greater story, a much greater effort that had been unfolding for many centuries. It wasn't just that Paul had caught a bad break and that he was getting ground up in the bureaucracy of the legal system. That wasn't it at all. What he was going through was part of the grand work of redemption conceived in the mind of God and accomplished by his power. Along the way, there was great opposition against this saving work, not only coming from the devil, but from lost men themselves, those who needed the cure. And so Paul knew this. He understand what we sometimes call the drama of redemption. He understood that he was part of this unfolding of heavenly history, helping to bring God's rescue plan to the earth. And so when he suffered for the sake of Christ, he didn't have to ask, why me? Why is this happening? He knew why it was happening. He knew it was because of sin that God's people were resisted and that God's work was resisted. And it was worth it to him because he wanted to overcome those obstacles and those barriers in order to save some. Paul asked for their patience there. Listen, not all questions can be answered quickly. We like quick information, headline information. I don't know when the last time is that I read an article, but I send links to articles every five minutes to people. Look at this, look at this, look at this. Did you read it? No, of course I read the headline. And of course, the headlines are always misleading. I'll let us all in on a spoiler. Every time you see a headline, it's not really what's going on. But we like quick information, quick answers. I just want to go to Google all the time. The kids ask me stuff. I don't know anything. So I say, hang on, Google knows. And I look and I'm like, okay, here's the answer. 
We like that quick access information. But listen, some big questions of life, particularly spiritual questions, not all of them can be answered quickly. Sometimes the truth cannot be rushed. Not everything we can know about God can fit on a post-it note. In fact, after a lifetime of study as a Christian, you're still gonna be able to learn more of him, more of his word, more of what he's done, more of what his character is like, and that's a wonderful thing. You're never gonna get tired of or exhaust the resources of learning who God is and what he's done. Verse four, all the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Paul wants to establish who he was before he surrendered his life to Jesus. And who he was was the best of the best that human religion could offer. There was no man that we know of Probably no man on all of planet Earth who is of greater focus, greater dedication, greater sincerity than Saul of Tarsus when it came to his religion. He was the top. He was so committed that he became famous for his spiritual commitment. Men like Festus, they only wished they could grasp philosophy and knowledge the way Saul had. They only wished they could have the kind of intellect that this guy had from the human perspective. Men like Herod Agrippa, man, guys like that didn't have the courage or the will to go the high road in their lives and deny base desires, to not do the things he knows he shouldn't do. He didn't have the drive to do that. But here's Saul of Tarsus, that rare man who laid hold of those high human virtues of human intellect, brilliance, human morality, he was the champion specimen, the best of the best that the world has to offer. So what happened? How did he go from rising star among the Sanhedrin to public enemy number one? Verse six, now I stand on trial because of the hope in what God promised to our ancestors, the promise our 12 tribes hope to reach as they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I'm being accused by the Jews because of this hope. The hope was the resurrection of the dead. Specifically, it was the hope that the Messiah had come, he had been killed, and now he was alive again. He raised from the dead, and therefore all who follow him would be raised to life again. This is the big sticking point of the Sadducees in the book of Acts. We've seen it again and again. Now listen, this wasn't a new promise. This wasn't a new teaching, some secret new doctrine where Paul came out of the woods one day and said, an angel gave me a new message, right? That's not what's happening. This had always been the hope of Israel revealed by God to his people. The problem is that the Jews had refused the idea of a suffering savior. Now we look back and we say, but it's right there on the page. I can show you chapter and verse. There it is in Isaiah. What's the deal? What about all these other references? How are you guys not putting that together? Had God made some terrible mistake? Did he forget to like hit send on the message to the Jews about a suffering savior, his resurrection, and then the resurrection from the dead? No, it was men who made the mistake, men who over time elevated temporal desires, elevated tradition, elevated custom and culture, to the same level as the revealed scriptures. And therefore their understanding became distorted and ruined. Now listen, this isn't a problem unique to the Jewish people of the Old Testament or of the first century. 
We can even look back in church history and see times when the church moved away from the clear, plain revelation of Scripture, and instead we're teaching things in a widespread sense, things like indulgences, purgatory, the crusades, right? We look at that back and we say, whoa, whoa, whoa. What does that have to do with anything that the Bible says? What does that have to do with anything with the, the doctrine of the apostles? But errors like these are made and we slip into them when, when God's people stop submitting to the plain understanding of the word of God and start to elevate tradition or custom or culture or earthly goals and desires and elevate those things to the same level of authority as the, the scripture. Only the scripture is supposed to have authority over our lives and over our conduct in that way. Not the church as a group, not human tradition, not our culture, not what's acceptable in the world around us, but the scripture as we read it and understand it and apply it to our lives. Now, Paul signals here that the resurrection should not only be considered our great hope, but that it should motivate us in our daily service to the Lord and that focusing on it will sustain us through the difficulties we face in this life. Verse eight, why do any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? The Greek culture, the Romans, they found the idea of resurrection absurd. And they thought that was crazy. As you share the gospel, eventually someone will scoff at the idea of life after death. But listen, it's not an illogical claim. And this is what Paul is saying. If there's a God who created life out of nothing, then there's absolutely no reason to think he couldn't bring someone back to life after death. It's not illogical if God exists, right? If there was nothing and there's a God and he created everything with the, with the word of his mouth, then resurrection is not an unreasonable or an illogical thing. Well, perhaps a person then says, well, I don't believe in God. That's common these days. It wasn't common in all of the past generations of human society, but in the more recent ones, it has become common and fashionable to say, well, I'm an atheist. I reject the idea that God exists. I suppose the question I would want someone who rejects the idea that God exists, the question I think I would want them to answer is this. Can you show me um, a symphony that wrote itself and played itself? Just one. Just one, anywhere on the world, anywhere in human history, it can be as long or as short as you like. One measure of music will suffice. Can you show me an example of that? Now that's an absurd idea, right? That's crazy. And we think, well, of course that's crazy. You can't have a symphony without someone writing it. You can't have a symphony without someone performing it, right? Think about it this way. The London Symphony Orchestra currently has 106 players. And when they want to perform a piece of music, it takes immense effort for them to, to do that, to come together, to master the music, to work as a single unit to perform one piece of music. And that doesn't even count the lifetime of musical dedication and study that each one of those individual players has, has given themselves to, right? We get it. We think, wow, man, those are people who have put in a lot of work and a lot of effort so that they can play Vivaldi's Four Seasons for me, right? Now, 106 players. Think about this. 
Scientists have so far discovered 118 elements, right? 106 players in the symphony, 118 elements in our universe that we know of. These elements work together around the clock in a meticulously fine-tuned orchestra to support life in an ever-expanding universe that is way bigger than we could ever hope to fathom or imagine in our little brains. And someone would say that this cosmic symphony wrote and plays itself? I mean, the Bible is true when it says a fool says in his heart, there is no God. There's nothing more absurd than to look around at creation, to think within ourselves and recognize what's going on, in, in, on, on planet earth and say, well, there's no God. It all just happened on accident. Verse nine, in fact, I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I actually did this in Jerusalem and I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority for that from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I was in agreement against them. In all the synagogues, I often punished them. I tried to make them blaspheme. Since I was terribly enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. Paul admits that he had tortured and killed Christians. Now, remember, this was the best man had to offer, the very best the very finest, the pinnacle of learning and enlightenment and spiritual dedication and discipline. The finest example of all of these things was a killer who hunted down innocent people to satiate his own fury. Christians weren't harming him. Christians weren't against him. But the very best man is still a man covered in, in sin and still a man ruled by sin and bound and held captive by the devil for his purposes. Now, we need not focus on the horrors of what Paul did when he was Saul of Tarsus. Instead, we marvel at the grace of what Christ did. This man, who Paul just described himself, here's who I was, here's what I did. This man was loved by God. This man was rescued from himself and completely changed from the inside out. Not only is that amazing grace, it's incredible to see that God is able to wash away the guilt of his sin. He says, not only am I going to change you from here on out, I'm gonna take away the guilt of what you've done to, Jesus said, you're persecuting me. This is what you're doing to my children, my friends, my church. And you know what? I'm gonna wipe away all of that guilt. I did take care of it when I died on the cross. I'll take care of all of that sin and bear it away as far as the east is from the west. It was over and done with. Paul was made new. Knowing who he would become, we read about Saul's rage, like earlier in the book of Acts or when we rehear his testimony here. We know who Paul is going to become on the other side of the Damascus road. And so when we read those passages, while Stephen is being stoned and persecution breaks out, we read them and what do we think? Are we mad at Saul? We kind of pity him, right? Because we know who he will be after Damascus. And so when we see him raging at the church in a passage like this, we pardon him in our hearts because we see, man, look what God is going to do in this life. We should also pity the opponents of the gospel today. It's much easier to hate them, but we don't wanna be like Jonah who was so consumed with hatred towards the enemies of God, so consumed with hatred towards the Ninevites that he initially refused to preach to them. And later he was angry when they received God's mercy. He was mad about it. He didn't want them to receive God's mercy. We wanna be like Ananias who was living there in Damascus waiting for Paul to come and hunt him down. And then when, G when Jesus came and said, Ananias, I want you to go and minister to Paul. He's, he was ready, ready to embrace even a person as wretched as Saul and welcome him into the family of God. 
verse 12, I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priests. Saul had been sent out with what looked like a lot of power and a commission to harm, but in a moment it was all gone, all dealt with, all changed, because God is really the one in charge. And now he has sent us out with his own commission, not to destroy, but to make disciples. And when we go, we go on the Lord's authority. So there's Saul of Tarsus and all of his supposed power and all of his supposed clout and all of his letters. I've got letters. And in a moment like that, the Lord says, I'm the one in charge here. And let me, let me show you what real commission is about, what real authority is about. Verse 13, King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I asked, who are you, Lord? Hold there. A sad but important element in Paul's story is the revelation that God will allow a person to kick against him. That's just the, that's just the truth of the matter. Paul did. We saw that Felix did a bunch of times. Festus will, Agrippa will. Even Peter did a bit back in the Cornelius story. Remember, he had that vision and the Lord said, rise, Peter, kill. And he said, no, I'm not gonna do that. He says, yeah, yeah, you need it three times. And then he said, you're gonna go with these guys. Now, listen, the Lord could have, if we think about this, the Lord could have just raptured Peter from the rooftop to Cornelius's house, right? He did something similar to that with Philip the evangelist, right? He raptured him away from his baptismal pool into Azotus. So God could do that. He could have said, Peter, you're gonna preach to Cornelius, boom, and he's there at Cornelius's house and he could have kind of made Peter robot and like mechanically forced him to do something, but God does not do that. God does not force himself on us either in salvation or to follow his leading. And so to the unsaved tonight, I would say, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's what the Bible says. To those of us who are Christians, we would say the same. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And in addition to that, that warning from the scripture, which says, don't quench the Holy Spirit. Another way of saying, don't kick against the goads of God's leading or his correction or his commands. Go the way he wants you to go. Kicking against the goads is not gonna do anyone any good, especially you. Verse 15 continues, and the Lord replied, I'm Jesus, the one who you are persecuting. Get up, stand on your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a service servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I'll rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There's a line in The Two Towers, the film version, as the battle at Helm's Deep is about to begin where Aragorn says to the soldiers, show them no mercy for you shall receive none. That's a good policy if you're fighting Urukai, just throwing that out there for, for the future, okay? Now listen, Saul had shown no mercy for the Christians he was persecuting, none whatsoever. When he goes to Damascus, he's hunting down refugees, right? He said, like, I, I knocked everybody out of Jerusalem. I, man, I'm going to find those, those war refugees. I'm going to go hunt those people down. He showed them no mercy. And yet the Lord Jesus met him with mercy and grace and such grace. This man who deserved only to be consumed by the righteous judgment of God instead was given an offer of life, not just life, but to have his debt wiped out, his sins forgiven. 
and an offer to be established and strengthened and to have mysteries revealed to him. Jesus said, I'll make you my spokesman. I'll make you my friend. I'll make you my co-heir. This is the offer that Jesus Christ makes to all of us, despite the fact that we deserve only judgment. We are guilty of the highest treason against a holy God. All we deserve is death and judgment. That's the wages of our sin. We deserve just as bad as what Saul of Tarsus would have deserved. We may have less blood on our hands, but we have no less sin in our hearts. And here, without being disrespectful, Paul pointed out to these glittering Gentiles sitting in the room that they were actually lost in darkness, blind and dying, slowly being crushed by the power of Satan. Listen, the gospel must contain the hard truth that unbelievers are bound in darkness and they are facing the wrath of God and must be saved from their sin. They have no future hope for the forgiveness of their sins. They have no future hope for life apart from Jesus Christ. And and the lost around us need to be told, you are headed towards death. That's where your roller coaster of life ends unless you accept the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. Verse 19, so then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and in all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and were trying to kill me. To this very day, I have had help from God and I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah would suffer and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles." Paul never once elevates himself in this talk, never talks himself up. He, he says, hey, look, I just did what I was told. Now, sure, he was talking to some great people in that scene, but he was just as ready to speak to a few poor nobodies down by the riverbank, and he did, because earthly status didn't mean anything to Paul anymore. He had lived a life where status, a certain kind of status was so important. It was the dedication of his life. And he says, None, all of that is refuse to me now. I don't care if you're great. I don't care if you're small. I just want to tell you about Jesus. Listen, if you're trapped in a burning building, it doesn't really matter who makes seven figures and who's dead broke, does it? It doesn't. Paul could see that all this world is a burning building. His aim was not to climb a ladder of worldly success, but to rescue whoever he could before the whole thing came crumbling down. Now, he says here that Christ was the first to rise from the dead. We don't have time for a full-blown eschatology study tonight, and we'll get to it in our studies in Revelation on Sunday mornings. But suffice it to say this, Christians sometimes argue about the resurrection, when it happens, to whom it happens, at what point. There are some who say there is only one general resurrection of everybody. However, as we read scripture as futurists, we see there are two. The first is for believers. The second resurrection is for the damned. The first resurrection is presented as happening in stages. Now, there are some people who criticize this idea. Okay, it's not an essential. But those who criticize it should admit that they too believe in at least a two-stage first resurrection because Christ is the first to rise. So if you come across something that says you believe in multiple stage resurrection, that's whatever, that's wrong, that's stupid. Everybody believes in at least two stages because Christ has risen already. And the Bible says he's the first to rise. Anyway, you can get all deep into that. We care about futurism and prophecy here. We'll get to it in Revelation. Verse 24, 
As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, you're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. Apparently in the Greek, when it says loud voice, the terms used are megaphone. I just like that. I don't know why. So Festus is all worked up. Perhaps he felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but instead of surrendering, he kicked. He kicked against the goad. He kicked against the Lord. What was his tactic? Dismiss the messenger so you can ignore the message. Now, Paul wasn't acting crazy. Impassioned, yes, but not crazy. It's so important that we as ambassadors and messengers live out our Christianity in a reasonable way with integrity and consistency. We do not want to give the unbelievers around us an excuse to ignore the message of the gospel because we do something that brings shame on the name of Jesus Christ. Now, the unbelieving world, one of their biggest complaints is the church is full of hypocrites, which is their way of saying, you're not perfect. Yeah, that's true. We're not perfect. But we also see so many examples of particularly of prominent Christians who are found out to be just living in continual sin. I mean, it just has happened a lot recently where these, these people who are leaders are very prominent in the faith. And it's like, by the way, this is what was going on behind closed doors. And when that happens, the unbelieving world says, see, I didn't have to listen to any of that at all. I don't have to listen to my Christian neighbor. I don't have to listen to my Christian family member. I don't have to read the Bible. I don't have to hear about this Jesus because look, that person is a liar. Now, God knows that we're not perfect, but there's a big difference between living imperfectly as Christians seeking to honor the Lord and being people who are two-faced and who are bringing shame on the name of Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't acting crazy. If you hang out online for a while, you'll see plenty of video evidence of Christians acting crazy. Don't be like that. But neither should we be indifferent about our Christian life. We're to be filled up with joy and zeal and passion to be about the Lord's business because it's a life and death business. And so we should be energetic in our efforts. Verse 25, Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most noble, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment for the king knows about these matters and I can speak boldly to him. For I'm convinced that none of these things have escaped his notice since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Our message should be built with biblical truth and good judgment. When we move off of that into sensationalism, uh, it only fails to change lives and makes us seem crazy to the world around us. Uh, don't be a crazy Christian who's just making stuff up because it's popular or trendy or because it you know, gets attention. We want to build with biblical truth and good sound judgment the way Paul did. Now, here's what Paul did. He talked about the history of Israel, the prophecies of the Old Testament, the true reliable testimony of Jesus Christ, and then now how his own life had been radically changed because of it. It doesn't mean that being born again is all a rational formula that doesn't require faith. It does. But the truth of God is reasonable and sober and able to be communicated in plain language. There were a lot of people in the room, but the spirit focused Paul's attention on one guy, Agrippa. Festus was clearly reacting very negatively, but Agrippa seemed to maybe be more receptive. And so Paul brought him to that moment of decision. He says, do you believe? That in itself is important. He did not say, will you be baptized or will you clean up the missteps of your life and prove you're worthy of being saved? No, he just says, do you believe? 
Jesus said, he who believes has eternal life. The Bible says we are not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when a person believes and God begins that transforming process of sanctification, then people will do the works of righteousness because faith without works is dead. But we are saved by grace through faith. And so the question for anyone here is, do you believe? And hopefully all of us can say, yes, I believe. And not only do I believe in my head, I believe through my life by obeying God and going his way. Verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, are you gonna persuade me to become a Christian so easily? I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am except for these chains. We don't know exactly how Agrippa responded. Some think he was being sarcastic. Some think he was right on the brink of repentance. We just simply can't know. What's clear is that he would not take that step into faith. He wouldn't trade the robes of Rome for the robe of righteousness. Now, for his part, Paul didn't wish imprisonment or martyrdom on any of them, but he did wish that they would become like him in being led by Christ, motivated by the resurrection, free from the burdens of sin, full of love towards others, surrendered to the goodness of God's charge over their lives, that they would each become people with a true and vibrant relationship with the living Messiah and become part of the long work of redemption. Paul wanted that for them, and that's what God wants for each of us here tonight as well. Verse 30, the king, the governor, Bernice, and all those sitting with them got up, and when they had left, they talked with each other and said, this man is not doing anything to deserve death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. In 1940, Winston Churchill delivered what is known as the fight them on the beaches speech. You're probably familiar with it. It's probably his most famous speech. It has been long remembered. When he gave it in the House of Commons, some members, even of the opposing party, were moved to tears. But not everyone was inspired. Many, even in his own Tory party, sat in sullen silence, one report said. And the next day, the government did polls uh, among the people who had heard the speech, and they showed that many Brits were depressed by his oratory. Of course, there was something more important than morale at stake. Churchill was talking about the very survival of multiplied millions of people on the earth facing the Nazi threat. Paul had delivered a powerful history-making presentation of the gospel. We have no idea if anyone in the room that day joined him in the family of God, but the urgency of the situation demanded the message be shared even if no one would believe. If you're a Christian here tonight, you have been brought into the work of God just as Paul was. Maybe the opportunities you receive are less dramatic than this, but they're no less important and no less urgent. God has scattered you and I into time and into place so that we can continue this kind of work. He supplied the power to stand strong in every circumstance. He's provided special revelation of scripture so that you can with authority proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. He has invited you to be a living proof of the resurrection as you live out a life transformed by the gospel and inviting whoever will listen to join you in this life of grace and fulfillment and certain hope thanks to the work of our gracious God, Jesus Christ.